Hello everyone, I'm Eric Rivenus with another episode of Aghast at the Past, 1892, delivered straight to your electronic brick. So before we examine some of the crimes and calamities that befell our ancestors on this day in history, a quick thought, or rather a regurgitation of someone else's thought. So I watched this weekend an interview with presidential historian Douglas Brinkley, He stated that the point of American history is always to remember that our own times aren't uniquely perilous. As an example he gave, Andrew Johnson never went to the inauguration of Ulysses S. Grant. We as a country have suffered through terrible things, including the assassinations of four American presidents. Um, We've made it through difficult times as a country, and I fully expect we will now as well. Huge developments in the Tina Davis case today. Terrible news. We'll get to that in a bit. First, I feel obligated to mention this episode contains graphic descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. So some national news first. Ohio swore in its new governor on this day in 1892. William McKinley, who had been a popular Republican congressman from that state, was talked into running by state party leaders and beat his opponent, incumbent Democrat James Campbell, by 20,000 votes. McKinley, of course, would become president of the United States only five years later. He would be one of those four presidents assassinated. We'll hear more from McKinley later this year as he plays an important role in the Republican National Convention this summer. So the following is an unbelievably horrific tragedy that actually occurred on Thursday, January 7th, and it continued to dominate the headlines for days afterwards. When I released my last episode, it hadn't been written about yet, but on January 11th, it's still being reported on on front pages nationwide. On the evening of January 7th, miners employed by the Osage Coal and Mining Company were busy working shaft number 11 on land owned by the Osage Indian tribe in Krebs, Oklahoma. Just after 5 p.m., an inexperienced worker accidentally fired a blast of explosives inside the mine while it was filled with 400 miners. The explosion was made worse by trapped gases. The result, close to 100 men were killed and about 200 wounded. Up to that point, the disaster was one of the worst in American history. Descriptions of the disaster flooded the news wires, including this one, printed in the St. Paul Globe on January 9th, page 1. A tongue of flame shot up the shaft and above the ground fully a hundred feet, which was followed by a terrific report, which was heard from miles around, and shook all the neighboring countries so violently that people in the surrounding mining towns, four and five miles distant, thought an earthquake was rocking the ground. The men already above ground were prostrated, 
by the force of the explosion, but did not receive severe injuries. The scenes about the mouth of the shaft immediately following were fearful in the extreme. Weeping wives, mothers, sisters, and children flocked to the scene from the village at the sound of the explosion, their faces blanched with dread, and many of them hysterical to the point of insanity. The air shaft, the only way to escape for the entombed miners, was the point where the relatives of the miners congregated. Many of the miners were able to make their way out of the tomb, and they were welcomed at the surface by their waiting friends. The injured were quickly taken to places of shelter and were tenderly cared for. One man with a broken leg climbed all the distance of 400 feet through the air shaft and fell unconscious as he reached the surface. Others who were terribly burned labored painfully up the ladder, strips of flesh falling from their hands and arms as they grasped the ladder rungs. The article went on to say that many of the men had congregated near the bottom of the shaft, and that locality is completely jammed with dead bodies. It is stated that 85 men succeeded in reaching the open air by means of an abandoned tunnel. About 40 miners were rescued by lowering of buckets at the hands of the rescuing party outside the shaft. And it goes on and on and on in detail. By January 11th, newspapers were reporting on the funerals of the deceased miners that had taken place on January 10th. The largest funeral, wrote the Kansas City Times, was a double. Father and son, George Lindsay Sr. and George Lindsay Jr. So, you think you had a bad week? A bad day? Wait till you hear this next story taken from page 5 of the Cincinnati Enquirer. It might put things in perspective if the story about the Krebs mining disaster didn't. Pitiful tale told by a former Cincinnati woman. Now on her way back here where her parents live. Pittsburgh, January 9th. A sad story was told at the Union Depot this morning by a former Cincinnati woman. When the Western Express from the East pulled in, from one of the cars alighted a pleasant but sad-faced little woman, carrying her babe in her arms and followed closely by six more children. The lady gave her name as Mrs. Anna Rockney. She said, I'm coming from Newark, New Jersey, where I have been living with my husband for nearly 30 years. He had a grocery store there and was doing a fine business. Indeed, he managed to save up $2,000 that he had put in bank there. About two months ago, he had an opportunity to make a good investment and proceeded to take his money out of bank. The day he did this, it was too late for him to place the money where he wanted, so he kept it in the house. We lived over the store until the next day. That night, we were awakened with a feeling of suffocation and found the building all in a blaze. We were only able to escape in our nightdresses. In the hurry, the money was entirely destroyed and no sign of it was ever found. The buildings and their contents were a total loss 
as our insurance had run out shortly before and had not been renewed. Then my husband took pneumonia from the exposure at the fire and died two weeks after. And less than a week later, one of my children died of the same disease acquired in the same way. I was left without anything, either money or clothes, and kind friends had to bury my dead. I am now going to my old parents' home in Cincinnati, where I will try to get work and know that my children will at least be well taken care of. My baby here is but six months old, and the oldest child is only 11 years. Next, an article out of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that documents a violent exchange in Pierce, Missouri. A double killing. Watchman Tim Coleman, fatally shot by Frank Coons. The desperado laid low by a shot from a Winchester. Pierce City, Missouri, January 11th. Our city was thrown into great excitement last night near 10 o'clock by the shooting of night watchman Tim Coleman by Frank Coons of Temple, Texas. Coleman was called upon to look after Coons, who was making a disturbance in a house of ill fame on Commercial Street. As Coleman stepped upon the front porch of the house, Coons shot him through the window, the bullet entering the left side above the heart. Coons then came out and crushed in his skull with his revolver. Coleman, when first shot, said, Oh, Lord, boys, I am shot, and expired in about 10 or 15 minutes. Coons then ran out the back door across the street to the residence of Mr. A.M. Chandler and tried to find some place to secret himself. Mr. Chandler came out and wished to know what was wanted. Coons gave him one of his revolvers and said, I'm off, and ran out in the backyard. Just at this time, Marshal R.J. Chapel made his appearance and stepping through the backyard gate came right upon Coons, who attempted to shoot him, snapping his revolver twice on empty shells. The Marshal at the same time was trying to shoot with his Winchester, which also had an empty shell in it. He quickly put in a charge and quick as a flash, shot the desperate man through the stomach the ball passing clear through. Coon's family lives in Temple, Texas, and he was on his way home, summoned there by the serious illness of his wife. He got on the wrong train and came to the city where he got drunk. He now lies dying in the city prison. His father is A.F. Coons, an engineer on the cotton belt who has been advised by telegraph of his son's condition. Both men leave families in destitute circumstances. Deltina Davis's disappearance has been the talk of Everett, Massachusetts. On the evening of December 23rd, she had told her mother she was off to get married to 31-year-old James Elbert Trefethen, a young business associate of the family. Soon after, her hat was found in the Mystic River, but no sign of her. Tina was just a few weeks shy of her 26th birthday and pregnant, according to her mother, 
and it was rumored that Trefethen was the father. Trefethen, however, has denied having anything to do with her at all. There's new information today on the front page of the Boston Globe on the investigation, including a chilling discovery. Tina Davis has been found, but not alive. The body of the girl who had been missing from her home in Everett since December 23rd was yesterday recovered from the Mystic River. Whether or not the unfortunate girl committed suicide or was murdered does not yet appear, but the police have taken no chances and have now under arrest the man to whom suspicion has long pointed as knowing more of the girl's disappearance than anyone else, James A. Trefethen. The body bears, however, such marks as to warrant the gravest suspicions that death did not come to the girl by her own act. It is in view of these suspicions that the arrest of Trefethen has been made. Should the latter show that a murder has been committed, he must clear himself if he can. With him has been arrested his brother-in-law, William E. Smith, as an alleged accessory after the fact. Both took their arrest calmly, were closely questioned separately by the police, and were then locked up for the night in the town lockup of Everett. From the time the hat of the dead girl was found on the banks of the Mystic River, the stream has been more than suspected to contain her body. And a most careful search has been made by the police of the places where they thought the body might lie. The progress of this search has been chronicled from day to day, and many people have also seen the officers at work. It was one of these persons who found the body. About four o'clock yesterday afternoon, Edward Fuller of Somerville was passing along the Wellington Bridge. It was low tide at the time, and in looking down the river, he saw an object lying on the mud flats about halfway between the high and low water mark and 150 feet from the bridge. He went over upon the marsh, waded as far as it was safe to go, and saw that the object was the body of a woman. He then notified the bridge tender, Thomas Leahy. Leahy and his son immediately put out in a boat, and on reaching the body, fastened a line to it and drew it to the pier of the draw, where it was taken from the water. By the time the body had been placed upon the pier, a large crowd of searchers had collected, among whom were several Everett citizens. They at once identified the body as that of Tina Davis. Among them was Franklin Fox, a next-door neighbor, Walter Peake, and M.H. Bullard. The brother of Miss Davis had been with the searching party, but had left for home about a half hour before the finding of the body. The part of the river where the discovery of the body was made lies between the Middlesex Avenue Bridge, which crosses from the Wellington side to Ten Hill Farm in Somerville, and the Boston and Maine Western Division Railroad. It was upon the sidewalk of the former bridge that draw tender Leahy discovered the wheel tracks of a vehicle on Christmas morning. These tracks leading from the Medford side are still plainly visible, 
and stop at the draw, where the wagon was lifted over the eight-inch guard timber that separates the roadbed from the sidewalk. Here the marks show that the horse was turned around and driven back toward Wellington. The body, when found, was frozen and completely covered with mud. The hair was badly matted. The body was in remarkably good condition, considering the time it must have been in the water. It was clad in a seal plush sack gown, a reddish-brown cashmere dress, black stockings, French kid boots encasing the feet, and a full outfit of underclothing. Medical examiner Durrell of Somerville was notified as soon as possible after the finding of the body, but it was almost dark before he reached Wellington Bridge. He found that the body had been taken from the river and placed on the pier of the draw. Owing to the gathering darkness, Dr. Durrell made only a hasty examination of the body and then ordered its removal to Nichols' undertaking establishment in Medford. Both eyes were blackened and there is a discoloration on the forehead. They may not indicate death by violence, but no police officer would hesitate to arrest a suspected person with such evidences of a possible murder before him coupled with the suspicions previously entertained. At the same time that the medical examiner was notified, word was sent to Chief of Police Holmes of Medford, and the body is now in his custody, having been found in his jurisdiction. Chief Emerton of Everett, Deputy Chief Sullivan of Malden, and State Police Officer J.H. Whitney were also notified and after a look at the body, decided that the man against whom suspicions had been made must be arrested. In the meantime, however, Sergeant Hewitt of Everett, who has been untiring in his work upon the case from the beginning, has fully identified the body as that of the much-sought-for girl, Tina Davis. Trefethen was arrested at his home on Nichols Street, soon after 7 o'clock by Sergeant Hewitt and Deputy Chief Sullivan. The officers went into the room at the rear of the store and asked for him. There was a great commotion among the people there when the officers appeared. He is upstairs. We will call him, was the reply to their question. Never mind, said the sergeant. I guess I'll go up myself if you'll show me the way. So upstairs they went and found Trefethen in his room in the upper story. With him was W.E. Smith, his brother-in-law, the man to whom Trefethen says he sold out his store and stock December 14th. Both men looked up in surprise as the officers entered. I want you, said the sergeant tersely. Very well, replied Trefethen and both men prepared to accompany the officers. No talk was made on the way to the station, and when ushered into the presence of the chief, Trefethen was as little worried as anyone in the room. Then he was taken into the chief's private office and was closely questioned. Officer Whitney and Deputy Chief Sullivan were present. The examination was a long and searching one. And at its close, 
Trefethen was taken to the lockup. He looked little more worried when he came out of the private office than when he went in. Good evening, he said pleasantly, as he recognized the Globe reporter as the one with whom he had previously had several interviews. An equally long and searching examination was made of Smith, the brother-in-law. He did not know at first that the body had been found. He went into the private office, calm and confident. He came out pale and worried, and like Trefethen, was taken to the lockup. Information was at once sought from the officers as to the results of the questioning. I have arrested Trefethen for murder, said Chief Emerton, in response to questions, and arrested Smith as being an accessory after the fact. They will be taken before Judge Pettengill at Malden tomorrow morning and will be formally committed to await the result of the autopsy. Concerning the result of the examination of the prisoners, the chief was more reticent, in view of his duty in case a prosecution should become necessary. It was learned, however, that Trefethen took his examination coolly, except when suddenly informed that the body of the girl had been found. My God, you haven't found her, have you? was his exclamation as he rose partly from his chair and then dropped back again. He soon recovered his composure, however, and answered as calmly as ever. He told a different story concerning his movements on the Wednesday night the girl disappeared from the one he told Chief Emerton when first questioned. Then he told the chief that he started for Charlestown but didn't get there before meeting his brother and returning home. His present story is believed to be that he really went to Charlestown on business and returned. The examination of Smith brought out the fact that the bill of sale of the store and the stock and the lease of the premises to him by Trefethen were not made on December 15th, as he had previously stated, but since the disappearance of the girl. The officers also say that there are discrepancies between the stories of the two men. Smith became quite faint several times during his examination and was given water to revive him. And now, in view of the arrest of Trefethen, it is pertinent to review the grounds of suspicion which the police have against them. In the first place, Trefethen is the man accused by the girl's mother of her daughter's ruin. The only man known to the mother who was sufficiently intimate with her daughter to warrant such an accusation. The man named by the daughter herself when she could no longer conceal her condition from her mother's eyes and was forced to a confession. In the second place, the police have been able to find no one else who was even reasonably intimate with the girl and believe they have proof to show that Trefethen's visits to her were much more friendly than he himself admits. Business, he says, was the only occasion for his calls, and that he never paid the girl any particular attention. Again, the police have the letter received by the mother on the day following her daughter's disappearance, and which bears a much stronger resemblance in its handwriting 
to that of Trefethen's than it does to that of the girl. This strong resemblance to Trefethen's handwriting and commented upon some days ago, and it now suffices to say that in the opinion of all who have compared the superscription on the envelope with a receipt given Mrs. Davis by Trefethen, the writing is either his or is a close imitation of it. The words Everett are almost identical in both, and the peculiarities in the formation of the capital letters are similar and very marked. Then the police have the evidence of wheel tracks on the sidewalk of the Wellington Bridge, just above the spot where the body was found, and the bits of red woolen fiber taken from the railing of the draw. The wheel tracks were made Christmas night and were found by the draw tender the next morning. The bits of wool fiber correspond very closely with similar fibers taken from a piece of the girl's dress. Also in the possession of the police is a long hair, corresponding in color and texture to that upon the head of the dead girl. This hair was found in a crease in the cushion of the buggy owned by Trefethen. Lastly, the police have the hat which the girl wore away. It is a blue plush turban with blue and yellow feathers. The frame on which it is made has been crushed nearly flat, as if a wagon wheel had passed over it. The hat was found on the bank of the Mystic River in Somerville, at a point where things seldom drift in with the tide. It was found the day after Christmas, resting at high water mark on the shore, and a careful examination of it shows that it could not have been in the water very long, if at all. Pressure into the mud under a wagon wheel would give it the appearance it had when found. Through it was passed the pin used to confine it to the wearer's head. It is almost impossible that the hat should have been torn from the wearer's head with the pin still in it. These are the things that Trefethen will find confronting him if the autopsy shows a murder. Mother does not know. Before she is told a finding of bodies, she will make a statement. The little home of the Davises on Ferry Street, Everett, was dark and quiet last evening. The mother of Tina was abed, sick, tired, worn out over the disappearance of her daughter and the rumors of foul play that had been floating around in connection with her and that of an Everett man. A friend of the family stood at the entrance to the home, which is located over the store, and refused admittance to all strangers. But few friends were allowed upstairs to see the haggard mother. But in the store, there was a dim light. The curtains were drawn close, but repeated rappings at the door brought a smooth-faced, coatless youth to the door, which he cautiously opened. It was the brother of the dead girl. He admitted the reporter, who had a note from a personal friend. Inside were a couple of neighbors. I have a note for you, said the reporter, drawing Charlie Davis away from the others. The brother laughed and said, 
That's what they all say. We had learned a couple of hours previous from the chief of police that the body of his sister had been found. He displayed no signs of emotion, save the laugh as he took the note. I can say nothing about the case, said young Davis. There will be an autopsy tomorrow, and then maybe I can say something. Well, I must not say anything. It may be suicide, or it may be murder. I have been told not to talk. Mother does not know that the body has been found. We are afraid that if she was informed, it would kill her. She is subject to heart disease and worn out. And worn out as she is, the shock would certainly take her life. She will not know tonight that the body has been recovered, but maybe with a night's rest, she will be stronger in the morning and can bear the news. But I am afraid that even then, the shock will be too much for her. She is the most important witness for the government, and before she is told of the finding of the body, she will make a sworn statement before a justice of the peace. Then, if the shock should prove too great for her strength, her testimony can be used at the trial. After the autopsy, maybe I can say more about the case. At present, it will be impossible for me to express my opinion. With that, Charles Davis went out of the doors and went upstairs to look out for his mother. Did she possess a fraction of his indifference? She could have been informed of the finding of her daughter's body last night. As it is, will the shock kill her? This has been another episode of Aghast at the Past 1892. Until next time.